Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is the podcast all about slow living in a fast-paced world. My name is Brooke McCallery. And my name is Ben McCallery. Welcome to episode seven of season three. We have a wonderful chat today between you and a lovely guest called Beth Kempton. We do indeed. Now tell me about Beth. She's passionate about a culture that I'm also passionate about. She is. So I guess in keeping with our unofficial theme of this season, we've sort of looked at slow through lots of different lenses and from lots of different perspectives. And today's episode is no different. Today, um, Beth and I talk about, uh, you know, what I consider slow living, mindful living, conscious living through the lens of Japanese culture. Okay. And Beth is someone who is not only passionate about Japanese culture, but incredibly knowledgeable. So she's been traveling there for the past 20 years. She's not Japanese. She's not Japanese, no. But she has a master's in Japanese. She speaks Japanese fluently. Mm -hmm. um, And she spent a significant amount of time over there, both with her family, but also, you know, with her husband and and by herself. It's interesting. She's like from the very beginning at goes to great lengths to explain that she's not explaining Japanese culture. She has sort of absorbed herself in Japanese culture and really found a lot of lessons on life, the way that she lives, the way that a lot of us live. And there's certain elements of Japanese culture that have inspired her, her writing and her work. And how wonderful is Japanese culture for oh, that? It's I mean, so Japanese incredible. culture and slow and intentional living go hand in hand. Like it's a very... To me, obvious connection. Well, it is. But then you think about the other side of my very limited understanding of Japanese culture is like I think of big cities. I think of hustle. I think of, you know, very technology heavy society, a lot of consumerism. And you think, well, that's not particularly slow. But then you go there and you can see how those two things, those two sides of of the coin kind of exist in a, in a way that I've never experienced before. And Beth and I talk about that, you know, mm. how you can be in Shinjuku or somewhere really busy and then stumble across this pocket of peace. Yeah. You know, you and I, when we were um, there most recently at the beginning of the year and we took the, the metro out to the fish markets and like you, you get off the train and it's really busy and everyone's going about their business. And then you, we wandered through this kind of little pocket neighborhood mm. that was, it was obviously incredibly old. The buildings were all really old and it just had this peace. Yeah. It's amazing. And then you turn the corner and there's a, it's like a skyscraper. It's different. Like you think of Tokyo versus New York. Yeah. It's a different feeling. It is. I like, I love both in, cities. In being in Tokyo. It doesn't feel as manic. Exactly. You have, I mean, you do have Central Park in, in New York. But I mean, but Tokyo has a lot of green spaces. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like there's more green spaces around it, you know, little bits and pieces rather than just one big massive land. Yeah, that's true. That's really true. And because uh, when we first went to Tokyo, I was expecting to feel like I feel when I'm in New York, which is kind of really jazz, like really high hyper. on life. Hyper. It, it, hyper exactly. Yeah. Which yeah. is great for a little while, but then I'm like, whoa, I need to yeah. step out for a bit. Yeah. Um, I didn't feel like that in Tokyo and I yeah. expected to. I think I think you can get quite hyper in uh, in Tokyo, particularly around the robot restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That was probably the most hyper thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Worth a look though if you find yourself in Tokyo Absolutely. and are looking to do something a little bit bananas. So for more information on, on Beth and what she's doing and, and her new book, Head over to bethkempton.com 
And you can also catch her on Instagram at, at Beth Kempton. Yeah, they're the two best places. So best book, um, the one that we discuss at length in this episode is called Wabi Sabi, uh, Japanese Wisdom for a Perfectly Imperfect Life. And uh, that came out in 2018, but you should be able to find it at all bookstores, Amazon, all the usual sus- suspects. Internationally. Internationally, yeah. yes. And I know it has been and will be uh, translated into a few different languages as well. So definitely check it out. It's um, it's really worth a read. And I, I, I just love the way that Beth has taken inspiration from this culture that she's immersed herself in for the past 20 years and is writing about it in a way that is applicable to those of us who haven't been immersed in Japanese culture. You know, there's so many lessons in what she shares and it's yeah. great. And I, I actually felt like, you know, I met another kindred spirit on the podcast with this episode. It was really wonderful. Head over to uh, the show notes, which is at slowyourhome.com slash season three. Before we get into the conversation, we are just days away from the new uh, slow beginnings. We always call it new beginnings for some reason. The slow beginnings online retreat, literally a couple of days away if you are listening to this live. Yeah, if you're listening to this the day that comes out, we are closing registration on September the 7th, 2019 for our brand new retreat. It kicks off on the 8th. So if, again, if you're listening to this live, then... Uh, Last minute. And you're interested, yeah. head over and, and register. Still, still register. Uh, but if you're listening to this after uh, the retreat has closed and you're interested, you can always head over there and register your interest for the next round. We'll be doing it a couple of times a year. And um, looking forward to seeing you then. Absolutely. Yeah. But uh, we've got a great group of people and I'm really excited to get started. So slowyourhome.com slash beginnings. beginnings. We'll get you there. For that online retreat with Brooke and some special guests. Hmm, you're calling yourself special. Am I involved? <laughs> you might make a guest appearance. Enjoy this conversation with Beth. Shut me down, why don't you? How rude. Hello, Beth. How are you? Hi, Brooke. I am good, thank you. And I'm looking forward to chatting with you. I am so <laughs> looking forward to chatting with you. I think that we're going to have uh, no trouble at all in, in filling our time chatting about slow living. And you know what? Let's just get into it because uh, this is why I'm so delighted to chat with you. Um, you come at slow living from a perspective that we haven't ever really explored on the podcast before, which is through the lens of Japanese culture. Or more specifically, through the lens of this beautiful book that you wrote last year, Wabi Sabi. Can you tell us, first of all, what is Wabi Sabi? Oh, my goodness. Talk about start with the most difficult question. Sorry. (laughs) It took me an entire book to get close to what Wabi Sabi is. And I'm still not 100% sure in terms of, um, I think it would be very arrogant to say I know what it is when it is one of the very few words that is kind of universally recognized by Japanese people, but is not in the Japanese dictionary, which in itself I find astonishing. I can't think of a single word in the English language that we all know and use that is not slang, that is not in the that isn't Oxford defined. English dictionary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I, I wouldn't be so bold as to say I absolutely know what it is because it's one of those beautiful things in Japanese culture, um, which kind of belies defining, but it is something that's worth seeking um, a definition for because it really opens your mind to I think new ways of seeing the world and when I say new it's really very old ways of seeing the world but I think sometimes 
the wisdom we need now is buried in history. Um, and so it, it's been a real pleasure for me to be able to kind of dive into the depths of Japanese language and the way people live to try and find out what does this concept of wabi-sabi, what does it really mean? And, and why does it matter that we understand it? And I, I think it's really important to say that the word wabi-sabi may be familiar to some listeners because it's been used quite a lot in the West, I would say, for the last 20 years or so, but mm. also it's become a very trendy word lately, but it's been used wrong in most cases. It's been used as an adjective to describe what things look like, you know. Right. Um, and do you know what I mean by that? Like, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, if you have like a, like an example would be, you know, handmade pottery or something like that is very wabi-sabi. Yeah, like yeah. wonky pottery yes. or um, a, a beautiful old table with, um, you know, showing signs of age that makes it even more beautiful a lot of people have been using wabi-sabi as an adjective essentially to describe these things and I always had a feeling that that was missing the mark somehow Mm. because Japanese people don't use it as an adjective and it does it doesn't matter per se in that it's lovely to have a word that describes that particular look and if that's what we want to call it that's fine but the the real Japanese word means something completely different I think the most fundamental difference is it's not about things at all it's about our response to things and the world and it's much closer to being some kind of feeling or emotional response that we have to beauty um, rather than the name of the beauty itself so what I discovered, um, and this is going to get a little bit philosophical, um, I discovered that really wabi-sabi is, is a few things. Um, and it depends who you talk to and it depends on what experience they're having because obviously everyone's having a very different experience of life depending on um, what is going on for them. But essentially, it is an intuitive response to beauty and, and a particular kind of beauty that reflects the true nature of life. And that true nature mm-hmm. of life being from from Zen um, in terms of the idea of life being impermanent, transient, everything's always changing. What it, when we see something that reminds us of that, we often have an intuitive response to it. And that response is wabi-sabi. And of course, so you have an aging table um, that is, uh, you know, that is aging with time. That is showing how even a solid table is not a permanent fixed thing. It's changing, even if very slowly right. and it's our response to that that makes us feel drawn to it and and that's kind of the essence of wabi-sabi in there it when you look at it from a point of view of a person looking at life it's an acceptance and an appreciation of that impermanent imperfect and incomplete nature of everything including ourselves and i think we'll come on to that because that's really quite a revelation when you think about absolutely. it absolutely <laughs> And then I think most relevant to you, it's really a recognition of the gifts of simple, slow and natural living. And I think that in particular is something that I've certainly never seen it connected in the English language to slow, simple, natural living. But it really is. When you talk to Japanese people about wabi-sabi, you have all sorts of bizarre and fascinating conversations. It starts off with, why on earth are you asking me about that (laughs) word? You don't ask them to define it. Um, but it's very interesting because they often go to a, a place of deep contemplation. And I've talked to people I've known for 20 years and people I've, you know, literally only just met through friends of friends or whatever. And even people I really don't know 
have had a very, very open, deep conversation with me in a way that often doesn't happen um, in in Japan when you've only just met someone. So there's something about this which connects very deeply with kind of the essence of being human, I think. Right. And I mean, I love the way that you described it. It's our in our response to uh, that, like the true nature of life, our response to the imperfections of it. And, and something that you talk about a lot is sort of this this perfectly imperfect vision of life and things and, you know, the process of, of aging or, or whatever it may be. And I think that the idea of perfectionism um, is something that people who, who are, I guess, drawn to slow living often have to battle against, you know, where we're sort of brought up in, particularly in Western cultures, that perfection is what we should be striving for. And I feel like wabi-sabi is an invitation and permission to um, accept things that are perfectly imperfect. Absolutely. And I think even perfectly perfect imperfection has become a kind of trendy word, which yes. is, all, is just a death knell for good things. It's awful, but it's so true. And I think these they become um, people start using these phrases because they really connect with them. And and for me, if, if you look at the idea that, OK, everything is impermanent, which means nothing is ever finished because it's all changing. And, and perfection is a state of completion. So nothing is perfect, right. including ourselves. Right. So if imperfection is our natural state, that firstly goes against so much that we're taught. And it, it kind of recalibrates everything, because if you're not aiming for per- perfection as a parent or a friend or, you know, manager of a team or whatever it is, you know, there's there's a kind of hustle energy in the pursuit of perfection. Um, which draws your attention away from lots of good things here in the moment. It's always pulling you forward because you're, you know, you're pursuing something which is very far in the distance. Mm. And you know, when you start thinking about this, it's actually completely unattainable. So you're sending so much of your energy into the future and out of the present experience. And I think you're absolutely right that that one of the reasons that people who are trying to live slowly. Um, have have a kind of battle is because there's just a general battle the mm. majority of the world is not trying to live slowly much as that is probably good for everybody um and so you have so many conversations where you almost have to educate people about where your thought process is coming from and and all of these kinds of things and and often slow living means letting go of things that other people think are important yeah uh, and that that's not always easy, is it? You not, know that. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's definitely not easy because I mean I think you feel like you need to not only stand your ground but defend it every time you have the conversation, every time you come up against another, you know, another bout of resistance from somebody or someone who is so caught up in their own hustle that to see someone else taking uh, taking time and, and creating space and holding space for slow it's almost an affront you know what do you mean what do you mean you're slowing down what do you mean you're saying no you know who gave you permission to do that yeah and, yeah, and I, I really think that perhaps that's why the idea of wabi-sabi has taken people and and as you say just that reaction that intuitive reaction that we have to something it, it really has taken people kind of at a at a deeper level you know we're not talking about trends you're talking about like an, an intuitive gut reaction completely and but interestingly something you can only notice when you slow down right right you know if you're rushing for a train and you're on your phone and you're checking your or you're checking your email or something you're not noticing the fact that the trees are fallen from the the leaves are fallen from the tree right mm. you're not thinking about oh the season's changing 
what does that mean for my food and my clothes and my life? What season of my life am I in? You know, you don't go off on those kind of interesting conversations with yourself if you're rushing for something else, you know. Yeah, I've been reading a lot about uh, how things like awe, you know, the the emotion or the experience of awe can change your concept um, of time and Mm. how, you know, experiencing awe and inviting beauty or creating these pockets of slow to look up at the trees or to see what the ants are doing or to, you know, think about why the clouds are that particular colour today. Or, you know, if you if you give yourself permission, if you kind of train yourself to have those moments throughout the day, what that does is stretch your sense of time. So people who do that, people who experience awe, actually feel like they have more time, which begets more opportunities to experience these kinds of emotions. And I think that's sort of something that I'm thinking a lot about at the moment. How do we communicate this to people who would swear to you that they do not have time to take a breath, but would benefit so greatly if they just did just take one, you know, one moment a day uh, and see. I mean, I just got full body chills when you talk about awe. And um, when I was researching um, Wabi Sabi, I spent an awful lot of time in Oxford, um, which has the best Japanese language library in the country. Um, and I was walking back from the library one day and um, there was this incredible double rainbow in the mm. sky. And this this teenager was walking towards me with this like head in his phone, totally you know, unaware of, of this phenomenon in the sky. And I just could not help myself. And I just reached out and touched him. And I was like, look, like on his arm. And he looked up and he's like, oh, and we both oh. just stood there with our mouths open, staring oh. at this thing together. And then it just, you know, one of one of them just like faded and there was just one maybe there. And then we just kind of looked at each other and and then he just walked on. And it was just amazing. There's literally like time froze. Yes. Expanded, bent, whatever it was. And that that was just so simple and and some obviously that's something that appeared and I happened to notice it but you can also carve out I would say more opportunity for those things to happen by looking and, and I, you know what I don't think it's our responsibility to to teach people that all's an awesome thing I think it's the, the best way to communicate it is by experiencing it ourselves and then talking about it and what it's yeah. done you know you sharing that rainbow on your Instagram and saying, well, that was amazing. And I want to find more of that rather than you should find more of that, you know, and I think people find their own way to be inspired by what we share, don't they? Yeah, that's, that's actually a really important point. Um, and I think about it a lot with my kids, you know, I, we'll go for a bushwalk with my kids and they'll stop and they'll point out flowers and they'll decide which fairy lives in these flowers or, you know, what magical creature has created these things. And I mean, I've kind of started to unpack why they're like that, you know, why. And I realized it's it's because I made an effort. I made I made a point rather when I was recovering from postnatal depression to show them that I was paying attention. I wasn't forcing them to pay attention, you know, but if we went for a walk, I'd point something out and then they'd point something out. You know, it was this love mm. language that we kind of developed. And I think you're you're absolutely right to just – enjoy it, sort of exemplify those those behaviours and let other people see what it brings you and, you know, share what you've discovered rather than kind of p- trying to pull people in to join you is a really powerful way of, I think, over time, encouraging people to see things from a different perspective rather than forcing, you know, forcing the issue. Yeah, yeah, 
I think I think it's the the only real way to change a lot yeah, of things. Yeah, I think you right. the, You know, aggressive campaigning, which obviously works in some places. When it comes to daily life, I think just you know living the way you want to live and sharing that experience with people when they're interested in it, when they ask about it, those kinds of things, but not shoving it down people's throats yeah. is, is really, really effective, I think. Yeah, I agree. One of the things that as I was reading um, about Wabi Sabi is it immediately struck me, it's really the opposite to so much of the way that we live now mm. and so many of the habits and behaviours that we as humans have that are harming ourselves, each other, the planet, you know, mass consumption and convenience and, and trends and keeping up with the Joneses. Do you think mm. that, and I, I mean, I think I know my answer, but I'm curious what you think. Do you think that this idea has the power to change the world if people like yourself just continue to exemplify it? I think. I think the world the world is always changing, but that's mm. fundamentally the bottom line, isn't it? And I think um we each hear what we need to hear in different ways through the you know, in the way that we learn, just you know, generally learn in different ways. I think we hear life lessons in different ways at different times. And um I think there's a lot of people that are not ready to hear this kind of thing. And there's a lot of people who are absolutely like have been waiting to hear this kind of thing. And I think one you know, responsibility as an author is often that you, you're just telling people what they really know deep down. Mm. But it's like you're giving them permission to believe it because you said it as well. And they realize it's not just them that was thinking it. I think books absolutely have the power to change the world. I think the issue is that a lot of people don't read books. And so that there's a kind of collective challenge in how do we get these ideas to people who who don't read who just watch telly or who just listen to podcasts or who just you know I, I don't know what, what however that you know go go to work go to the supermarket go home go out whatever it is yeah. you know we all live our daily life looks different to different people um, and so I think books have a huge role to play and I, I also love the fact that I got to dig into a culture that can seem really inaccessible to people because they don't speak the language, you know, and the reality is the vast majority of the world is not going to speak Japanese. And there are many things hidden in the language and, and the way the language is experienced because it's so much more than just the words um, that you just cannot access if you don't speak it. And, you know, I'm not Japanese, of course, but I've spent an awful lot of my life um, studying it and living there and um, living around and with and working with Japanese people. And I actually think there's some things that you can only notice when you're not the thing that's being looked at. <laughs> so there's a real, you know, there's a real value in us noticing the world from our particular perspective um, and sharing it. I'd love to think that it can change the world, but I certainly don't think it will just be this. I think it's the work you're doing. I think it's the work that, I mean, just look at how many podcasts there are compared to three years ago. It's incredible. There are so many people with really good things to say. And I, I think the biggest challenges are, is winning people's attention because there are so many distractions right. in their days, you know? So it's, it's kind of like chicken and egg, isn't it? The slower you live, the more you can find out about the good things about slow living. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> You know, um, it's, it's a really interesting thing to think about, though, isn't it? And that, that when you get the chance to write a book or many books to think, you know, what, if if one person who really needs this is going to read this, what's the one thing I want to help them change in their life? I mean, yeah. that's, that's a huge thing, isn't it? It's massive. I mean, and it's it's a, a genuine privilege to be able to to have that opportunity to do it. 
uh, there's two things that I really want to dive into with this notion of wabi-sabi and things that I've struggled with, things that I know people listening to the podcast have struggled with. Uh, and the first one is it, it kind of brings to mind this idea of contentment to me um, and acceptance. And it's funny, I I really used to think that contentment was like the, you know, the the poor cousin of happiness. <laughs> like I, I, oh, I, really? I did. That's so interesting. Yeah, I thought, well, why would I want to be content when I could be happy, when I could be joyful, when I could, you know, have like that brilliant, sunshiny, uh, you know, manic kind of joy. Uh, and I didn't realize that they're just completely different things. Uh, you know, I, I really didn't recognize that contentment is about acceptance and it's about presence. And happiness is, is another emotion entirely. But I think that um, the idea of, of, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but wabi-sabi seems to kind of live in that, um, in some ways at least maybe, in that idea of contentment. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And acceptance is so, it's so huge. And I have, that's, a, that's a word that I say battled with, just really didn't understand for a really long time. And then I just realised one day that it's, it's simply aligning with the truth of the present moment. Mm. You know, whatever, what's true in this moment. And you can bring that down to details. I'm sat here looking out of my window and the rain is dripping off the thatch roof and I can hear it hitting the rain butts, water butts below and I'm a little bit cold and my tea's not steaming anymore. Those are facts of this moment. There's also when something kind of, you know, hits you out of nowhere, some bad news or some good news, and it can completely throw you off. And actually, what's the truth right now? The truth is I've just heard this thing, something I'm going to have to deal with. This is different to what I thought it was five minutes ago. Those kind of like you can you can stop in the moment and mm. think what's true about this right now. Like what's changed because I know this information, um, but that you keep your power when you realize that all you then have to do is decide what to do next rather than get like washed away by something that is kind of hurled into your life by practicing acceptance of like, anchoring yourself into what is true in my life right now. Um, it, it can really help you, I think, deal with hard times, make the most of good things that come your way. Um, and that idea of be connecting in the present moment and thinking about the details of what's what can I see? What can I hear? What can I feel? What can I taste and smell? All these things. Practicing that on a daily basis at any time really helps you when something comes hurtling towards you and you have to um, deal with it. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it gives you that, that tool, doesn't it? That that moment, that that beat to just say, okay, <laughs> what is true right now? I love that. That's really, really powerful. And I think reframing contentment even to to just that simple idea will be really helpful. I know I'll be thinking about it a lot, but I think it's it's incredibly helpful and incredibly powerful. Well, I think contentment to me feels like this really solid foundation. Like if you're content, then of course, like emotions come and go, including happiness. Yeah. But you've got you're kind of rooted in this contentment. So if on top of that, you're you've got this tool that's allowing you to check in when something's changing, you've got this kind of solid root from which to respond. You know? mm. And you, I love you said in that B is like a like a moment that if you take that moment to stop and think and breathe, mostly breathe, um, then it can make so much difference to what happens next. So it's like that tiny pause in time which allows you to not 
you know, explode with anger or whatever. Absolutely. And I think that that reactionary sort of headspace, man, that's where I spent years of my life just reacting, not ever even considering that taking a beat was a possibility, you know. Yeah. And I think that that same practice also does what we were talking about before. Um, in my experience anyway, it, it helps us to stretch or slow time because I, I find that when I do, when I am in that reactionary headspace, you know, and, and something happens and I'm, I'm, I'm reacting in one of myriad ways that I could have reacted but I take that path immediately without even thinking, everything feels rushed and it feels frantic. Um, but if you just take that beat, that breath, as you said particularly, to ground yourself in what is true right this moment and then you think, okay, what's the next thing I do? You don't, I think we, yeah. we run away with yeah, the future. Absolutely. And, yeah, I think that that's, that's really powerful. I want to say as well that I, it's, it's not the case that every Japanese person has got this nailed. Right. And, I was going to know, ask that, you. That, <laughs> <laughs> We've been missing out on the secret, you know. <laughs> it's really not. And, I, you know, I, I think, having, you know, having studied um, Japan and East Asia and stuff for many years, it's really, really obvious that after the Second World War when Americans – helped to rebuild Japan and the, the whole American dream came to especially really capture the imagination of, of young people. And there was this very, very rapid economic development and man-made thirst for more stuff mm. was kind of imported, really. And a, a lot of people turned away from traditional Japanese culture because I, I think like, fundamentally it didn't seem cool for a while because right. American culture seemed a lot cooler. And the, that brought some good things and many difficult things um, to the country. And that there are, there are many people in Japan who still are very, very closely connected to um, ancient culture and their traditions and that uphold that and dedicate their lives to it. You know, that's not dying out. But there are an awful lot of people who um, are as disconnected from those kind of older ways of thinking as we are in any I would say developed country, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think there are lessons in that today. I mean, I just got a note this morning asking to have a, a chapter of the book in this, this big Japanese magazine. And it's so right. interesting. You know, there are things in my own culture for sure that I don't necessarily practice, but if I spent time looking into them, we'd probably be like, Oh yeah, that's, that's really valuable and really worth holding on to. So there, there's definitely an element of fast living um, in Japan, but I, there is also for sure, a movement towards um, slower living for many people. And in many people's case, that means a shift from urban living to rural living. Um, but that's not always the case. Yeah. And I feel like that's uh, often what people picture. I'm not talking about Japanese people particularly, but people in general picture when they start to think about slowing down or changing the pace at which they're living or shifting their values and priorities, you know, closer to the middle of their lives. It's do I have to uproot myself and uh, my family potentially and, and move to the country? Uh, absolutely, that's one option, you know, that's that's definitely an option. But it's not. That's what I did. Um, yeah, and, you know, to be fair, that's what I did too. But, <laughs> I don't, but it like, took a long time. It's only a recent thing. Yes, yeah, it's not exactly. Way, is it? It's not the only way, you know, and you and I were talking before we hit record about um, having Ben and I and the kids spend a little bit of time in Tokyo on the way home and how for such a – a bustling, enormous, you know, massively busy, full city, you can be wandering through Tokyo and just uncover these pockets of 
of, of slow or of beauty or of, you know, people just living in a, in a way that I would never have expected in a city like Tokyo. Uh, and I love it. I love that, that duality, I guess, you know, that in a, in a society that's much like our society that is consumerist driven and, um, you know, fast paced, that there are still so many opportunities for that if you're paying attention, you know. Absolutely. I mean, I used to live in Shinjuku where the, the station, I think it's the busiest station in the world, gets like three and a half million visitors a day or something. We so what's that like? like just down the road. From yeah, it's, it's like crazy. like the population of Sydney, Paris and London going yeah. through the station every week or something like that. I yeah. mean, it's just a crazy amount of people that you just can't imagine until you're there, right? And then it's just like a wall of people coming towards you. And and yet there were, you know, the the place I lived, which was very close to that, was incredibly calm and quiet um just down tucked down a tiny side street and people you know they were growing herbs and going about their day and chatting you know had a very close connection to their neighbors and walking down the street like you said there are these pockets of calm there's a lot of um green space small bits of green space and very big beautiful bits of green space with shrines and temples in them in the middle of the big city um and for me as well i think this was even more the case before i learned to speak Japanese that if you're in a place with a foreign language it can become quite meditative to hear something that you don't understand mm. you know, that lo- listen to the sounds there's a wonderful um podcast from the BBC I think it was just a one episode thing this guy recorded the sounds of Japan um oh, and wow. it, there's no words at all it's literally like walking through into the convenience store and then um through a park and at a temple and it's absolutely gorgeous to listen to um and and I think that it's it's just about noticing, isn't it, so often? Yeah, I agree 100%. So, I mean, someone listening to this who is already convinced, you know, that they, they're they possibly listening to this podcast because they want to slow down because they've started experimenting with it. Do you have any kind of practical advice or suggestions on how to, to bring more in, of that into their day-to-day life? I mean, I know I love the idea of rituals, you know, and if you could turn – Perhaps, as you said, that sort of body scan technique into a ritual, um, that's something that you could tap into. Do you, do you have any other, any other suggestions for people who are really wanting to, to delve into this art of noticing more? I think the single easiest thing for anybody to do is to be curious. Pick something, anything, and be curious about it. Again, it can be as simple as picking a colour for the day and going to look for it as you, on your, as you go about your day. It can be picking a topic, whether it's something that's relevant to your daily life or just something that you heard and thought, oh, I wonder what that's about. And going to find out about it and looking for signs connected to that thing around you, not for some particular end goal, like I'm going to get a certificate because now I know about this thing. But, you know, just looking around you for for things that are connected to it and the the noticing of those things becomes you know almost like the the call to pause Mm. as you as you go about so for example um just out of nowhere if I thought about I don't know growing potatoes oh I'm quite curious about growing potatoes who does that what, where do they end up? What can I go and visit a farm and see how that happens? What 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 is a potato before it's a potato? What happens to the seed potato when all the other potatoes are grown from it? Like how do the colours change? Like there's so many details you can. Th- I mean, it's just a very random 
topic, but there is so many details you can dig into. And as you're walking down the high street, you might see a potato cafe has just opened. And oh, that's interesting. I'm going to go in because that's a sign calling me towards the thing I'm curious about. Maybe I'll end up having a very interesting conversation with the person who's just opened the potato cafe. You know, you just don't know. And I think letting go of having to do things for a particular reason and just following your curiosity is brilliant if you're a creative person trying to be more creative. Um, but just in general life, I think we can get so fixated on the path that we're on and trying to do things because they're going to help us get a promotion or you know whatever it is that we we narrow our perspective so much and actually spending some time and giving attention to things that are outside what we normally think about can lead us in all sorts of wonderful places. Absolutely. And sort of it's it's letting go of the idea of goals and goal-oriented living in a certain way, isn't it? I mean, I think goals and success and climbing the ladder and the progression that we should be kind of striving for drives so many of our decisions. But I love that piece of advice to just get curious, get get, you know, specifically curious about something completely odd and see where it leads you. Yeah. The thing is, we're not in control of the timeline, right? I don't know who is in control of the timeline, but and goals are fine. You know, they're they're handy as markers towards something that, you know, keeping you on track to, you know, maybe learn something that you're interested in or, you know, I want to write a book, right? I need to learn how how to write a book proposal. That's a thing. That's a goal. I've learned it. Now I'm closer to the thing I really want to do, which is explore something interesting in the world, write about it and help other people. So so goals like that are fine. But I think when you were talking about major life goals must get married by the time I'm 34, must have a three bedroom house in this particular part of the city. But I mean, what? Like by this date, what? Why? Mm. And and also there are so many things in life that are out of your control that I think aiming towards a kind of way of living is so much less stressful because there are so many ways that you can get towards a particular way of living. Even if the one that you thought was the way didn't work out, it doesn't suddenly become failure. I'm not going to bother with that then. It's like, oh, okay, there must be another route. What's that? And it completely changes the way you navigate, I think, with a lot less stress. Absolutely. You know, and it, there's there's almost playfulness and experimentation and grace and compassion in that approach as well you know whereas the very rigid this is the path that I am on and this is the path that I will not leave until I reach you know this particular big life goal if life changes if it throws you a curveball if you get sick if something happens and you you're off that path that sense of failure can be really crushing you know to us and I think I'm curious actually how does the the idea of wabi-sabi play into failure um, and 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 has it reframed your your thoughts on it? It has, and I you know there's a whole chapter in the book about reframing failure, but it was that it was probably the hardest thing to figure out how to write about because there is a big stigma around failure in Japan. Um, right. I, yeah, and I remember when I was just um, doing my first degree, and we I did a whole thing on business Japanese, and we would spend hours translating um Japanese financial newspapers and it was at a time where the bubble was collapsing and um all these big companies were going down and the CEOs of these companies were were always um resigning sometimes committing suicide mm. like taking the failure on as complete personal responsibility um and I so I was like well how but but there is definitely an element of because you're not seeking perfection 
it's not as black and white as we made it or we didn't. And, and it took a long time to kind of grapple with with those things. And a lot of, to be honest, a lot of things in Japanese culture are, are contrasting and contradictory. And I think it's really interesting for you to find your own, you know, to, to find your own answer in between these things. But a big part of that, I think, is because of this Western inspired drive for economic success, to be honest, um, all those big public failure things um, have come about since, you know, that kind of way of, of running the economy. And it's, if you go really far back into Japanese history, there's kind of a, an honour in taking responsibility to your fa- for your failures, you know. Um, but what I really figured out was that Japanese people who are very good in one particular area, for example, somebody who wants to become a master potter, we, we might do a degree in pottery and it's it's the way that we do it in the West to big up ourselves as somebody who's very experienced and and now I've, I've got this business and I've done X Y Z and this is all great mm. um, and and almost claim more than we realistically have put the time in for. We want results very fast and then we want to tell people how amazing we are and um, perhaps before we're quite as amazing as we want to be. Whereas in in Japan, you know, a, a master of something would would not really refer to themselves as a master of it. It's a title that other people would give them. And people dedicate decades towards getting as good as they can be at something. So, for example, one of the tea masters that I interviewed for the book, he has just retired after 30 years um, working in one of the leading schools of tea in Japan. He said, I'm so glad I've retired now. I can actually learn some more things mm. um, in tea, in the world of tea. And and I think it's a very different attitude to learning. Um, and that's where the important lesson is, I think, about failure as, in its role as helping us to learn. And that what I noticed is that it's much more likely that, than a Japanese person trying to be the best, they're trying to do their best. And there's a really big difference in that. Um, and even if they're doing your best means kind of, a, you know, the I, I, there is an ideal in my head that I'm trying to get towards and the way I'm trying to get towards it is by learning more and studying more and keeping growing and investing in my own development. I don't expect to make something perfect ever because I understand that there is no such thing as perfection, but I'm absolutely honing my craft to get as close to that as I can. There is no done it or not done it in that situation you're just doing your very best mm. and I think that's a healthier way of looking at learning you know like with Japanese language oh my goodness I had a massive crisis of confidence halfway through writing that book going what what do I know I'm not Japanese you know I spent 20 years studying Japanese I got two degrees in it I worked really really hard I memorized the dictionary all these things I don't live in Japan right now so there was a time in the past where my Japanese was so much better than it is now it's completely fine but you know I measure myself against even my own standards of what I used to be like and I think I could, you could just give up. I could go, I can never know as much as a Japanese person who's a philosophy, you know, a 70-year-old Japanese philosopher who's also a Zen monk and a tea master is going to know. Of course I don't. But you can let that take over and stop you doing stuff. Or you can say, well, what what perspective can I bring that nobody else can bring? And and so I think there's a it's really a perspective thing. And talking about how you can access the good learning in a failure and so very often when we look back failures have been I think the universe helping us like nudge us onto the right, right. path because if it, it worked out we'd be on a completely different trajectory which might not suit us you know yeah and I think that um, 
that is so hard for so many of us to grapple with, you know, even even acknowledging that because it's sort of taking us away from the path that we had had planned and we had made all of these these arrangements based on. Uh, but I, I love that that idea, you know, the way that you kind of weighed up, I guess, what is the hustle of maybe Western society versus the growth of Japanese society. You know, you can kind of hustle and you can get there and you can you can kind of want the immediate gratification almost or you can you can choose a path of constant growth. And I love the, like, the lifelong learning sort of approach as well. And it's, it's always dangerous when you look at other cu- cultures and you compare cultures and, you know, especially now when, you know, so many people have blended culture backgrounds and their families and people have traveled so much more. So they, you know, they have their own views on these things. And there, there is no like one way that Japanese people live, just as there is no one way that British people live or Australian people live. You know, that's that's not what we're saying here. I think the, the interesting thing is looking at other cultures and picking out the lessons that you can learn from and going even even if you don't 100% understand the origin of it just go well what does that make me think about in terms of my own right. life what does that make me reflect on and how can i use that in the context of my own life to do things differently in a way that's going to serve me you know i think that that's the whole the whole point of this book for me you know i i i'm fascinated by japanese culture but i'm even more interested in how anybody can pause reflect on what, how other people live and say oh that's useful for me you know and that's what I love about your work I mean you're at no point coming in and saying this is a thing that I am going to define for you and this is how it applies and you know it, it really is just an invitation to look at things from a, a different perspective and if that different perspective is inspired by these these different cultural ideas that we haven't been particularly aware of I think it's wonderful going back to your idea of curiosity it plays into that so perfectly you know what if I if I was to look through my look through this lens at my life for the next little while what impact would that make you know what yeah what shifts will I feel in myself what what will I notice what will what will change um and it's sort of a it's very invitational and really accessible and almost kind of experimental you know your your invitation to people is is let's just see what happens and I I love that I really do I think it's so um gentle and so needed oh I'm so glad thank you (laughs) no it's um it's really it's really wonderful and I want to encourage anyone listening to to grab a copy of your book because it's absolutely worth your time and your inquiry definitely I'd love to know what what you took from I know you've been there twice now like is there anything that you picked up from your visits that you've kind of taken back into your life at home You know one of one of my favorite things um is just the ritual of onsens uh, mm. it was just we so we stayed in Nazawa onsen which obviously is a a village that um, has onsens at the heart of it but the the places that we stayed all had their own private onsens and then there's about 15 or 16 um, communal onsens in in the village and I absolutely adored that process as a westerner I was kind of pretty pretty nervous about getting into an onsen with a group of strangers and bathing and I did some research like Ben and I and the kids watched a few videos about how to behave and what the you know what what the expected behavior was and I think that helped a lot but going out for an early morning onsen with my daughter or coming back from a, a day skiing and going with her was it's probably one of my 
most cherished memories mm. because it, it gave her an opportunity to experience something that I certainly never did as a kid and to understand that there's beauty in that and that, you know, we, we have one, like we have this kind of, this bubble that we live in, but there's so many other beautiful ways of doing things in the world and I loved being able to experience that with her. Um, but also it just felt ritualized. I mean, the, the ritual of, of bathing felt like such a grounding experience. I mean, I'd float back to our room, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just feeling like I'd, I've discovered the secret of, you know, the universe. It was, it's really wonderful. That was the thing that, that impacted me probably the most obviously, but also just being in a, in a place like, um, like Tokyo, and sitting in one of the big parks and, and watching people. I loved that, in, as I said before, in a, a city as busy as that, in a, in a place as, you know, driven and in parts it can feel frantic and everyone's busy, everyone's doing things, everyone's on their way somewhere or, you know, have, have been somewhere, to still be able to sit and watch a group of young guys um, taking photos of, of birds, you know, in the trees or mm. listening to someone practice music and that it's absolutely 100% possible to carve out these pockets of peace despite mm. what I think we think it needs to be like. Yeah, we did a um, sabbatical a few um, years ago. Me and my husband went for six months to Kyoto because he realised he couldn't really speak to any of my friends and he wanted to learn some Japanese. <laughs> so, um, and it was brilliant and he went to um, – to language school every morning and mm. he used to cycle or run down um the Kamogawa river in Kyoto and um it was amazing how much life there was early in the morning and there was this one particular guy who'd be playing a saxophone there'd be people doing tai chi there'd be people just sat there looking at the river and just so much you know where whenever it is in the day just a few moments can make such a difference can it to how you feel about the day absolutely you know and I, yeah I think that that's a that's genuinely really helpful for helpful for me, helpful for a lot of people to think. It doesn't need to all be kind of floating through the day in this zen-like bubble. It's, um, you know, I don't think that's particularly realistic for the majority of people, but it's mm. like having those moments and, and creating those small rituals or, or choosing to carve out that, that time, even if it's 30 seconds while, well, you know, even if it's if it's 30 seconds on the bus and you're looking at the raindrops kind of coming down the, the glass um, of the bus window, that is you carving out time. And it's just a matter of doing it intentionally, you know, and, and noticing and, and stretching time. Absolutely. Yeah. God, how powerful we sound when we say we can stretch time. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's this idea that's really taken root with me recently yeah. and I'm really excited by it, you know, because there's, there are ways that we can do it and it, it kind of become like a superhero. <laughs> yeah. Bending time. Uh, Beth, thank you so much for sharing everything that you've shared and, and part of your story and part of your, um, you know, your understanding of something that is very indefinable I think in Wabi Sabi but you've given me so much to think about and I'm incredibly grateful so thank you oh it's my absolute pleasure I feel like you're a kindred spirit and I hope we can share a cup of tea somewhere in some, yeah on the edge of beautiful farmland um, in a village far from everywhere in Japan one day that sounds absolutely <laughs> delightful
Who is that? Hi, podcast.